Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Laura Muñoz. And today, we have a guest that I'm happy to introduce because she works with me with flies, and we like working with flies. So uh, welcome, Abby Bechard from Biology. Hi, how's it going? Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Glad to have you here and uh, spreading the word, spreading the fly research gospel, as it, as it were. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. um, I've kind of uh, already given it away, but why don't you give us a little bit more information on you and what you're up to uh, research-wise? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, but in my research, I'm mainly focusing on um, a behavior called social spacing. And it's actually something that um, we, we see a lot in people that have autism and autism spectrum disorders where they have abnormal social spacing. So that could mean something like they are often standing too close or too far away in group settings, things like that. And what my lab is focusing on is trying to find both the genetic and neuron brain basis for that behavior. So I kind of go from a more genetic level and neuron level, which is like a brain cell of uh, studying that behavior. And right now I'm looking at two structures that are in the fly brain specifically. And I'm kind of messing with them a little bit, um, either like super activating them or inhibiting them and seeing that's effect on the social spacing behavior. And uh, we're kind of doing that so we can figure out all the different genes and neuron circuits that contribute to social space because it's a very basic behavior. It's involved in a lot of other social behaviors, you know, like it kind of precedes things like before you even talk to someone, usually you're probably going to walk up to them for, oh, of course not right now over Zoom and <laughs> in these, you know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah, you, you walk up to them first and you're like, hey, like, how's it going? But if you walk up and you're right in their face, you know what I mean? Like, they'd probably be like, why are you trying to fight me kind of thing? So we're trying to figure out what determines what we consider the appropriate distance, you know? And we're going back to flies to do that, which is pretty cool, I think. And how do you extrapolate that from flies to humans? Because I'm pretty sure like the way uh, flies behave is very different in terms of social, but I'm not sure about this. I don't work with flies. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. That's the crazy thing actually, is that we are super huge advocates for the flies in the Simon Lab as uh, Ariel mentioned earlier, because they are so much more like us than like uh, anyone would would know that doesn't study flies, right? Like um, specifically in their brain, there are a lot of conserved structures and things that do kind of the same functions in the fly as they do in us. Like we have a lot more similar genes and stuff than you would think. And um, flies are more social too than I ever thought before I worked with them. Things like the males will fence each other where they kind of like, they kind of fight for the attention of females or food things like that. And they even, um, they've been shown to make friends, like quote unquote friends, because they will interact with like certain flies more than others. Like they form social groups and like uh, networks, which is pretty cool. So, but also the gene that I'm looking at, like the one I'm interested in, we have the same gene. We have the exact same, it's called a homolog, where it is essentially performing a very similar function and encoded very similarly in their 
in their genes as it is in ours. So it's, um, it, it is basic research, you know, but you can start in the fly and then maybe try that same gene in mice because mice also have it and kind of work your way up towards humans. But yeah, I think uh, it, it does extrapolate to humans a little more than I had realized originally, which is kind of cool. So on the genetic side, I'm wondering if there is like an influence of the context because like the gene can be the same, but given that it's a completely different organism, I mean, we're very far apart from insects, yeah. <laughs> the evolutionary tree. So I wonder um, if even in different contexts, how do you know that they are, they actually have the exact same function or that you can actually use that to study autism that ha I like, I'm even wondering, do you know if flies have autism or something like similar? Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. yeah. Well, the way that we found this gene was through autism candidate studies. So we actually found it in humans first because uh, what was done by other researchers is they just looked at the genomes, like the genes of a lot of people that have autism and found genes associated with that. So like common variants. And one of them was this gene called neuroligin that I'm looking at. So they originally found it in humans before we brought it down to the fly level. And to confirm that it does the same thing, we kind of just have to um, study it, I guess, a little more. Um, I'm not sure if the mechanism in humans, like the way it works in the brain, has been totally figured out yet. But in flies, it has. So I guess the way that we would figure out if it is essentially the same thing is just by um, studying brain cells, I guess, in humans and flies. Um, because the fly cells have pretty much, we've we're almost figured out what it does entirely, well, not entirely, but a lot more. So yeah, I think, I feel like I, that the answer was in there somewhere. We would just have to study the human brain and then see if it does perform the same function or similarly, I suppose, in order to extrapolate. You know, I think it would be kind of fun for people to for you to maybe walk us through how you how you handle these animals some some people are like well where do you how do you catch them like where what do you even do with them how do you do with any experiments on an on an animal so small like where do they even go so you're you're in your first year masters right yep. and um you've been but you've been doing work with flies for quite a while now because you worked in this lab um during your undergrad as well so yes. Can you tell us um, like a day-to-day, -day, if you're running these experiments where you're looking at the social behavior of flies, mm -hmm. how do you do that? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we take care of the, what we call the stalks of flies, which is just um, bottles of flies. Essentially what we do is we make food every week, which is a mixture of like brown sugar and yeast and stuff. And it makes kind of like a, a jello sort of, but a little bit harder that is in a bottle, like just like a 500 mil bottle that is like kind of thinner at the top sort of thing. It's hard to describe like a pyramid shape almost. And then the flies just live in these little bottles and we have a whole bunch of them. And every couple of weeks you transfer them to new bottles, fresh food, whatever. So that's kind of a thing that's ongoing throughout my whole project is like keeping the flies alive, obviously. And then when I want to study something like social space, in the beginning of the day, I usually have to go into what we call the behavior room, which is where we do all of our experiments so that things stay consistent. 
you know, that you want everything at the same temperature, kind of the same looking background, just to make sure that that kind of stuff doesn't interfere with the results at all. So I'll go in there and I'll put on um, like humidifiers, heaters, that kind of stuff to get everything to 25 degrees specifically, et cetera, just to have it be consistent for each experiment. And then I'll put my flies in there for a while just to allow them to acclimate to that. Like, so they're not shocked by the new temperature or anything. And then thus having that affect their behavior, that kind of stuff. And then what I will do, put them in new vials. And then um, we use these things called social spacing assay chambers to measure their social space, which is, um, it took a lot of time actually to get them in there because it's pretty much, it's like a, almost a 2D thing, but not quite because you have two glass panes that have the slightest separation in them because there's little plastic pieces in the center keeping them from totally touching. And then there's like a little space on the top that you have to manage to get your flies into the chamber and enclose around them. And when I started, um, for some reason, everybody that worked in the lab has bigger, well, big hands because what they did was like, they used this little funnel to that, like went into the fly chamber and they just kind of jammed the flies in through that way. But I could not hold the funnel up while holding the assay chamber at all. Like I just kept dropping it constantly. So I figured out other ways to get the flies in. I think you actually taught me, Ariel, um, where you like suck the flies up into a little tube and then you like, oh yeah. Yeah. And then it's like you aspirate them and then you, you like blow them that. into the chamber. Yeah. And then that's a lot harder than it seems because you have to have a certain number of flies. And I think I've honestly gone through hundreds of flies just like escaping. So then I couldn't finish my assay because then I couldn't actually use it for my results, which sucked. But now I'm a lot better at it. So you put the flies in the chamber basically and you let them chillax for like 30 minutes. And with flies, the way it works is once they find a spot to sit, they kind of just stay there unless they get hungry or they want to mate or something like that. So ours are actually separated by sex, first of all, before we put them in the chambers. And there's no food in the chambers as well. So they generally stay wherever they settle. And then we just take a picture of wherever they are and we use a um, whole bunch of data, data analyzing software to just uh, determine their social spacing afterwards. So and then doing that, you can test a whole bunch of different things, like different genes that you might think are affecting social space. Um, there's some tools where you can like specifically make um, neurons fire in certain areas of the brain to be like, okay, is this structure involved? Is this circuit involved, et cetera? So it's really cool because it's a very simple assay and we can get a lot of information out of it, I guess. And that's kind of the, the biggest experiment I do. And I usually, that takes about three weeks to prepare because you have to mate your flies accordingly and stuff like that. And with their life cycle, you have to incorporate the time needed to like hatch the eggs, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a big setup, but that's usually what I do on a day to day. Just kind of do a social spacing assay. Oh, I dissect a lot of brains. That one. <laughs> yeah, that one's um, a little more, a little more sketchy. Um, but yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> how big is a, a brain from a fly? I actually don't know. Very small. Do you have the number off the top of your head, Ariel? Um, like 10,000 neurons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Like right. That. Yeah. Um, I'd say, but number of neurons doesn't really tell you in a measurement. I'd say like, um, 
three, 400 mic microns across, something like that. That sounds <laughs> uh, so, right. So, so really, really small, much smaller than a millimeter. So like how that. do you dissect it? Uh, you actually just have your fly, like um, you have a microscope and you look through it and the fly is like, you kind of stake it in hard into this like little jelly substance. Um, <laughs> and then that keeps the fly still, like you pin it and you look through the microscope and you have two sets of tweezers and then you just kind of pull the head off like really carefully and you, you, it sounds gross. Yeah. Oh no, you killed them first. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you kill them. Oh, that sounds really sad. Um, right before you do it, essentially. Yeah, you like knock them out with carbon dioxide and then you put them in um, an alcohol solution for like five, 10 minutes. So that kind of takes care of that. But yeah, and then you just use these like super fine tip tweezers to like kind of, you don't really pull apart the brain. That's the last thing you want to do. You just want to pull the skin off of the brain. That makes sense. And then, yeah. <laughs> then you're kind of left with the little tiny brain and you put it on a slide and then you can image it which is actually you can see some cool stuff that way but it was really hard to learn how to do that for sure it's like you have a how do you say surgeon i don't know how to say that in english but like yes yeah. skills <laughs> yeah honestly though like it really sucks because the days that you know you're going to do brain dissections like no coffee you can't because like, yeah it's shaky you know so that those are always the sad days <laughs> well um you know uh i've talked to people who analyze big data and uh, they don't end up actually doing any of the experiments themselves so I, it was the first time i heard from someone like that that called people like us experimentalists who just because we actually run the experiments ourselves and i think one of my favorite things about experiments and being an experimentalist as you someone call us is that we can control all these factors and that we can actually like manipulate things which is like this is really helpful for animal models where humans we can't do that so um as a you know someone proficient in genetics can you kind of give us an idea how you're able to manipulate the genetics of a fly yeah, for sure. Um, it's actually, that's why I really like flies specifically is because they have a lot of really awesome, like controlled genetic tools, like things that are specific. So for example, um, we, we have their whole genome sequence. Like we know the ins and outs of the fly. We know every gene they have, which is a huge leg up for sure. And uh, broadly, I think a lot of the genes have been characterized. So we know a lot of what they do. So it's pretty easy. Like there's actually a website where you can go on, it's called Flybase and just search up stuff about fly genes and learn and be like, oh, might this be related to what I'm doing? That kind of stuff. So there's a lot of data already, which is awesome. And then what I'm using and what um, I know a lot of other fly researchers use a lot is this really cool system. It's like a, a two-part system. And what you can do is express a, express a specific gene in any tissue you want in the fly. And it's super easy. And all you have to do is order them. Basically, like you just call up this place. It's like the Drosophila Stock Center or hello, or you just go on the website, which is probably more normal. Um, <laughs> but you can look up like, oh, is it possible to get a gene that expresses specifically, I don't know, in their arms, something like that. And that will probably exist. So the two parts of it is the one part is something that forces the expression in a certain tissue. And then the other part is the gene that you want to express. So you can order them and they come in two separate lines. 
So one fly line will have like just the gene that has this like driver, we'll call it the thing that like forces the expression in your specific tissue. And then the other one only has the gene that you want to express. So those ones separately, even though they have their genes altered, they don't actually produce anything different because they don't have the full two-part system. But then when you mate the flies, their progeny will have both parts. So only in the progeny, you'll get the expression of that gene that you would like to express. So it's really cool that way because um, it allows a lot of, like you said, like specific controlled experiments where you can see the effect of this single gene. And there are a lot more complicated versions of that tool as well, where you can get like temperature specific expression, or you can get only expression when they're this old, etc. So it, it's really nice that you can do that because for example, um, I know a lot of people are kind of want to, they wonder why we study things like flies instead of just being like, oh, well, why don't you just study humans? You know, like it makes a lot more sense. Well, it's like, you can't really legally genetically manipulate humans, you know, but, <laughs> but you can do that in flies. And then a lot of it does extrapolate, like I said, and then you can move up from there. You can move towards humans. So, so I wonder in your experiment, are all of the flies modificated or just some of you just modify some of them and put, put them together with flies that have the regular gene? Okay, yeah, what we do actually is um, we'll have like a, what's a, a control line. So it's kind of just like a lab strain that has existed for about 100 years now and it has no genetic manipulations to it at all. And when we do our social spacing assay, we have separate chambers for all of them. So I'll have like the control flies and then I'll have my like genetically manipulated flies in a different chamber and stuff like that. That way they don't interact with each other and cause like some sort of difference because of that. So that's, yeah, we'll do that in a lot of the experiments, which is definitely good. <laughs> for but one day, well, like one that have an effect, like they wait the way they are raised is different so therefore you could oh, implicate. Yeah. like I'm just wondering right like, oh, because if you saying. raise a lot of people that have that doesn't have a gene may like mm -hmm. behave different from people that do have that gene or something like that I don't know definitely so you're thinking of more like a control for the actual gene inside even if it's not doing anything kind of what you're no, thinking like if if they grow together <laughs> okay well they're actually we keep the flies in the same place we have an incubator that's set at 25 degrees celsius where we keep all of our bottles of flies so they're all raised in there oh. so that yeah so that keeps it pretty consistent well, i guess um i think that you couldn't tell the difference between these flies, uh, the genetically manipulated and the the control ones in terms of looking at them, right? So so maybe that's the reason you can't put them together in the same assay, Oh, right? yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, they look, well, for what I'm doing, they look exactly the same. Yeah, I'd have no idea which was which. Um, and I know there are ways of like marking them. You can go through and like pull off their wings and stuff, but then like you don't know if that will affect other things, right? So. That's why we don't do that. Well, I mean, you'd said, I know that that's not the work done in the Simon lab, but like, mm -hmm. well, if, if flies have friends, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe it would be interesting one day to see how, what it would be like to take a, a you know, mutant fly or a genetically manipulated fly, a single one and put it in a group of, of, of control flies yeah. and see, see how it reacts. Uh, if you can find a way to, 
to market separately and track where it is. Uh, Maybe that would be interesting one day. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, I bet that probably has been done. Like nothing comes to the, you know, like to to my mind right now, but that would be interesting to see how like kind of like an odd one out scenario, like you said, Um, just to see if it is a lot different or maybe they could learn from those other flies and they wouldn't be any different, something like that. That would be very interesting. I'd like to see that for sure. Do you know about any precedent for like social learning in flies? Hmm, sorry, can you explain? Like, can flies learn a social behavior from another fly? Have you uh, ever I heard see. of that before? No, actually, I haven't read about that. That's I know flies definitely, um, there have been studies on learning and memory, 100%, because the structure that I'm looking at in the brain is known to be associated with learning and memory. So based on that, I would say, yeah, flies probably are able to learn from other flies at some instances, but um, definitely not something that we would see in you know humans, not to that extent, for sure. I feel like this kind of research is very complicated because like there's so many things that you have to account for, right? Like, for example, the environment, just the fact that you have to throw them into that chamber will could generate some stress that you have to account into your research or how do you know if they have cold or I don't know like uh, to be fair I don't know but I I feel like you don't behave the same when you're cold or too hot and you if you're too hot you don't want to be close from other people and these kind of things I feel like you have to take into account so many small factors yeah uh, that I feel like it's I don't know, like, I'm very impressed. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Well, it's honestly, it's just like more and more experiments based on previous ones. Like, because I know in our lab, like the Simon lab, there have been experiments in the past where like, okay, does temperature affect social space? And then they'll have a bunch of different chambers at different temperatures and compare them. And then we're like, okay, so we know temperature doesn't affect it. And then from that, we'll build on to it and we'll be like, okay, so now we're going to gently place them in the chamber. And then in this one, we're going to like just slam them in there and see if that affects social space. You know, it's kind of like the slow building up of information to where you can get into specifics because you know, then that certain things won't matter. Ah, that's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. You do know which things can have an effect. Yes, exactly. Okay. Avi, that's great. So I, I was wondering... What, what are you expecting to get from this experiment? What, how are you expecting the flies to behave when they are not modified? And what do you think it's going to happen once you modify those flies? So I think that there will be a difference. I can't say whether it will be like they're further apart or closer together. But uh, what I'm thinking we will see is that when I manipulate the expression of this gene and those specific brain structures that I'm looking at, we will see like altered social spacing. And that's kind of why we want to know is like, we're not sure how it affects one way or another. You know what I mean? Like, um, we know this gene is involved, but does it increase social spacing when this gene expression is increased? We don't know. But so I'm just hoping to see a difference. So I suspect that um, because you don't, you're not, you're not really concerned with the valence. You're like, is it more or less? Doesn't matter if it has some impact. Then this is something we can, you know, work with. Um, is that the kind of thing you would see in in autism? Is that you have both effects of people, uh, mm-hmm. their, their social space closer and or or farther. autism yeah I do yeah actually that is common where it depends on um where they are on the autism spectrum etc or even um 
similar autism spectrum disorders, like uh, Williams, for example, Williams syndrome, is where they have decreased social spacing. So they're very much in your face, kind of, you know, very close to other people. And then in others, uh, they might have increased where they prefer not to be touched or be near other people in general. So yeah, it's kind of hard to determine one way or another, but we just want to see if this gene is involved in that. And then we can run with it from there, we, you know, because um, it does seem to differ between the two uh, sexes as well. So it'd be interesting to see if we get different results, say like females get closer together and males get further, uh, which is something we do see a lot actually with other genes we've been looking at. So that's kind of, I know, I think there'll be a difference, but I'm just excited to see if there is essentially. <laughs> Well, certainly this study in general is exciting and working with flies and doing controlled experiments is, is all quite cool. I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah. flies, but I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, could you tell us, you know, in our last few minutes, yeah. what, uh, what got you interested in doing a biology master's degree? Well, actually I, uh, in high school, I just, um, I loved biology. It was just my favorite class. I had a great teacher. I think that helped a lot. And then when I went into university, I just, um, I knew I liked biology. And then I had a couple of friends that switched into genetics specifically. And I was like, hold up, I want to be in genetics. <laughs> Not just because they were, but I found the classes, like I did better in them. So I was like, you know what? I'm interested in this. I do better in it. Maybe I'd like to continue. And I actually met uh, my, my PI through an internship. Well, kind of, I took a few of her classes and then I got to know her better because I did an internship after third year where we collaborated with her. And uh, she actually just offered to me, she was like, oh, do you wanna do your fourth year thesis in my lab? And I was kind of like, oh, you know who I am? Like, <laughs> I couldn't believe she remembered me from her classes. Um, but then I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, uh, I, uh, I like the idea of learning about um, neurodivergence, I guess, like scientifically and seeing how we can use it to help people in the real world is um, something I think we, we need more studies on. So that's kind of where, when uh, Dr. Simon offered, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to somehow help, even though this is at the really basic end of things, it will extrapolate in the future is what I'm thinking. And, you know, one day it could actually lead to something super duper helpful, not just uh, pushing flies, so. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, well, it's, it's good to hear that you had a, a, a good connection with your supervisor. That's always yeah. important for graduate students to have. Oh my gosh. Yeah. A thousand percent. <laughs> like I would totally recommend getting to know your supervisor before, <laughs> beforehand, you know, it uh, makes a well, world of a difference. If people uh, want to get to know you on yeah. the internet, <laughs> how could they find you? Yeah. Actually, uh, where would I'm, they go? Yeah, uh, they could go to Facebook, actually. I am Abby Bayshard. Uh, but yeah, Facebook that would be the best. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you, Abby, for coming on the show. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host has been Laura Minos. We've been speaking with Abby Bayshard. And this episode was produced by also Laura. If you'd like to be involved in the show, get in contact with us. Email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Gradcast Radio. And to listen to us, we're available on the radio at Radio Western 94.9 FM, on our website, gradcast.ca, and on wherever podcasts are available, all apps, Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Certain episodes are 
uploaded as a video on YouTube, so you can find us there at Radio as well. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.